Major progress on Highway 1. Critical temporary repairs are now completed and that water levels continue to recede. How soon traffic could be flowing through the Fraser Valley again. The risk of more flooding. We know the longer that water stays there, the more damage there will be. Preparing for the next atmospheric river. And polluted waterways. And when that river flowed out of there, that just flushed everything out. All the damaged property they're pulling out of the flood zone. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We begin with a piece of good news on the flooding disaster in this province. Progress has been made on Highway 1 and tomorrow it's expected to fully reopen between Chilliwack and Abbotsford. Aaron MacArthur is live with the details now. And Aaron, if this does happen as they say it should, it's going to be a big relief for a lot of people. Yeah, Chris, I mean, this is the last bottleneck in the chain, in the supply chain, getting goods from the lower mainland out to the rest of the province. So fully open between Abbotsford and Chilliwack to all passenger cars, all transportation goods. And then the, the goods and services can move on Highway 1 east of Chilliwack to Hope for Essential and then on Highway 3 out to the rest of the province. Uh, the, there are still some issues with the highway. I was just speaking with a police officer who said the westbound lanes are free and clear, but the, or sorry, the eastbound rain, lanes rather are fl- free and clear. It's the westbound lanes that they still need to do some work on. Uh, there's some debris on the road and the, and the s- shoulders are soft as the water was running off towards the north. And as you said, the transportation minister promising or suggesting that the road will be open if everything goes according to plan. Critical temporary repairs are now completed and that water levels continue to recede. Uh, Today, our crews are on the flood-affected portion of Highway 1, uh, clearing debris off the road. We're looking to have this road open at some point tomorrow. So Highway 1 tomorrow is what we are uh, projecting as the uh, estimated opening time uh, through the Fraser Valley and to connect with the rest of Highway 1. Two and a half hours, I think it was, right? Yeah. Two and a half hours. Yeah. So that'd be nice. Make things a lot easier, right? No, it's looking up from last week. Now, according to uh, Minister Fleming, the one caveat here, of course, is the weather. If, if it does pour and the river and the water levels start to come up, then all bets are off. There will be more information on the exact time of opening if it happens tomorrow. Chris, Toby. All right. Weather's definitely a factor tonight. Thanks very much. Aaron MacArthur reporting live from Abbotsford. Well, the first in another round of atmospheric rivers is expected to hit the south coast tonight. That has made for a very busy day for emergency crews and Canadian Forces soldiers as they race to safeguard vital infrastructure and homes. John Hua reports. The pressure is hard to imagine. Residents in Claiborne Village in a race against the clock. Rushing cleanup efforts knowing more water might be on the way. It is going to be very hard to sleep. I think right when I hear the rain, I'm keeping the door, the window open and um, going to be checking every, every five minutes. Less than 10 days ago, rising water breached the banks of Kelly Creek, leaving most of this community badly flooded. It's been exhausting trying to deal with the uh, flood mitigation, sandbagging. While neighbors are working together to pick up the pieces, finding themselves in the path of another atmospheric river feels more like cruel punishment. That's definitely always something that's on the back of our minds. Like, 
motivation, all that stuff. Is this really worth it if it's just going to happen again? Just when the burden couldn't feel any heavier, residents are finding comfort in the presence of the Canadian military. So far, this group here has moved, I think, over 100,000 sandbags in the last couple of days. So it's a, it's a, it's a lot of work, hopefully to good effect. The priority shoring up the banks of Kelly Creek by building up with sandbags and digging down with heavy equipment. The soldiers have been killing themselves to get it done. It's been fantastic to see. They're absolutely committed to this effort. Another key focus on the Sumas Prairie, repairing and reinforcing sections of the dike in hopes of sparing one of the worst hit areas from further hardship. The repair to the main dike breach near number three road is approximately 90% complete. We expect another three feet of height to be added to the dike prior to the first weather event anticipated for tomorrow. Back in Claiborne Village, whether the long days are spent cleaning up after the last storm or preparing for the next one, you can be sure most will be followed by sleepless nights. John Hua, Global News, Abbotsford. All right, let's bring in senior meteorologist Christy Gordon for more on the next system on deck and the rainfall expected. Christy? Sophie, the massive Pacific frontal system has taken over the entire province already. Here's a look at it on the satellite image, but it's really the tail or the atmospheric river itself that pulls in that subtropical moisture that is the most destructive. Now, right now, it's targeting the north and central coast with heavy rain, but it's going to shift down towards the south coast overnight. We're expecting 50 to 80 millimeters of rain. This, by comparison to the one that devastated the region, far less moisture expected. We will see significant snowmelt as well. Uh, the good news is that this atmospheric river is expected to shift out of the region in just over 24 hours, meaning that we'll see far less moisture and far less impact. But of course, we still have two other systems on deck. I'll detail out those storms when I come back. All right, Christy, we'll talk to you in a bit. Of all the damaged roadways, the Highway 8 corridor is definitely among the worst. Large sections of it are simply gone, and the Thompson River scoured out a whole new path along the route during last week's flooding. One resident is still missing, swept away when the river consumed her home. And now, as Amatagahi reports, locals say they are starting to feel forgotten. Out of all the severed connections in our province, perhaps the most devastated and seemingly unrepairable of them all is BC's Highway 8. The highway's gone in a lot of places. It is a nightmare. The approximately 69-kilometer route dates back almost a century as part of the old Southern Trans-Provincial Highway. It is now sometimes called the Nicola Highway, connecting Merritt to Spence's Bridge and the number one to the Coquihalla. But people like Stephen Rice, who is now evacuated to Spence's Bridge, also call it home. After the wildfires, nobody, nobody thought it could get any worse. And certainly for the Highway 8 family, it got worse. Conditions are even more challenging for residents along Highway 8 between Merritt and Spence's Bridge. The pictures and videos showing large sections of the highway washed away by the Nicola River are dramatic. Structures are gone washed away by the storm into the Nicola River. Many of those in danger evacuated with little more than the clothes on their backs. The RCMP says one person is missing, unable to escape her home before it too gave way to the rushing water. My neighbor is not accounted for and her house is gone. 
Communication is cut off or at best difficult among First Nations communities in the area, while the infrastructure loss is massive. BC Hydro lost 75 power poles, 14 transformers. The province says 18 segments of highway suffered the same fate. So did four bridges. You could never dream in your wildest dreams something like this happening and then the aftermath of the destruction and not knowing if you'll ever get back home. And some people are thinking that right now. The highway that likely saved many lives, acting as a critical escape route from summer wildfires now, not likely to reopen anytime soon, let alone repair. Emadagahi, Global News. Well, there is still no clear count of the number of homes and properties that were damaged or destroyed in the floods on the Thompson and Fraser Rivers. But a lot of debris, including hazardous materials, is being recovered more than 230 kilometers downstream. Rumina Dea spent the day on the Fraser and is live in Mission tonight. Rumina? Sophie, the Fraser Valley Angling Guides Association has collected three dumpsters full of debris. It's overflowing here. They actually don't have any more room. Uh, you've got an oxygen tank back here. This was recovered out of the river. There's a propane tank, some sort of container with solvent in it. Over here, you've got a snowboard, um, even a freezer and some couch cushions. The most critical thing right now is to remove hazardous materials from the water. Okay. Time is running out to get hazardous materials out of the Fraser River before the next storm hits. This is a 500-gallon propane tank. According to the gauge, it's about 70% full. That thing has come down the Thompson River where all the people go rafting through the Class 5 rapids. Okay, buddy, try that again. Huh? Retired fishing guide Vic Caro blown away that the tank and other toxic debris is arriving in Mission all the way from Spence's Bridge, which is more than 230 kilometers away. It's the power of the water. The power of the water is, you have no control over that. From the water, it just looks like a bunch of debris on the shoreline. But once you stand here, you realize that you're walking inside people's homes. There's a piece of wood here. This looks like it was from a dresser, a bread box over here, and a two by six from someone's house. Tires, paint cans, styrofoam. Oil cans, antifreeze, even freezers. Ron Howneat, one of about two dozen fishing guides, volunteering their time and money to clean up the Fraser. Their livelihoods depend on it. It'll be total devastation for the the future of them, those salmon stocks. Everybody, all the guides have been working their ass off since last Tuesday. And they'll stay as long as it takes to protect the river. It's something that we all have an interest in, and we want to make sure that it's going to be taken care of for the future of our kids and our kids' kids. Now, the fishing guides tell me that the salmon just cannot take another hit. This is spawning season right now, and they say that the flood last week likely wiped out billions of eggs. Back to you. Wow, incredible. Thanks for that, Ramina. Crews in Princeton are slowly repairing the damage to their town from last week. The water system is down to one line across the Tulamine River. 
A second water line is now being built with drilling underneath the Tulamine. And members of the Canadian Armed Forces have finally arrived in the community, something the town's mayor had been asking for. I'm here with my uh, recce sergeant, and we're probably looking to find uh, tasks that the Army could do that's more specialized. They're out here, like, en masse, and what they're going to start doing today is helping you uh, building sandbags, filling them, and then maybe employing them on the dike just to help reinforce it. At least five square blocks were flooded as the water surged through town last Monday. Members of a First Nation near Merritt say they have been left to fend for themselves since flooding forced them from their homes. Many have nothing to go back to, their properties destroyed. As Kamal Karamali reports, it might take a year before they can rebuild. The destruction, the devastation, shack and First Nation land just west of Merritt, much of it passed down for generations over countless years, gone in the blaze. Take a look at these pictures, side by side of the same stretch of Highway 8 before and after the floods. Cliff faces crumbled away, roadways completely underwater. Shack and elder Maynard Joe lost his farm, now submerged under flood waters. And the water was two feet from the door, and the river had spread all over the hayfield where the horses usually graze. Shack and First Nation members were told to evacuate their lands last week, but they say the province left them to fend for themselves. There was no uh, food vouchers, there was no accommodations lined up for them, and so those people were sitting there uh, without any, any, basically any help or food or, or shelter. Now they've found shelter at a nearby Trans Mountain construction camp, dealing with nearly a dozen homes destroyed. The Shakan Indian Band say they've received no help or guidance from the government on what to do next. Definitely more manpower, um, more resources, um, and immediate, immediate assistance. The province announcing Wednesday it has now created a multi-agency unit to help Indigenous communities access supports. We need to streamline our processes to help people access supports more easily. But this First Nation leader says the help is coming too little too late. We fell through the cracks. They they let our people down. They have not taken responsibility. Now the plan is to look ahead. They won't risk rebuilding their destroyed homes during the spring thaw out of fears of even more flooding, which means any chance of rebuilding their houses on their traditional land won't happen until a year from now. Kamal Karmali, Global News. A group preserving the sacrifices of veterans deals with crime and chaos. It's a pain in the butt, let me tell you. What happened when he confronted a group of people loitering and allegedly doing drugs on the stairwell of the Nanaimo Military Museum? That's next on the News Hour. Vancouver has the barge on the beach, but Prince Rupert had this a runaway container ship rescued as it ran aground. Coming up on the News Hour. And when the snow gets deep in Grand Forks, just call in the donkey. That's later. As you do. Right now, though, an Nanaimo senior who volunteers at the city's military museum is frustrated by the state of his city's downtown core. He says he was attacked by a group of drug users on Saturday for doing nothing more than asking them to move. Jordan Armstrong reports. It's the largest display of its type in the world. 
Pat Murphy is 17 years past standard retirement age, but he's still very involved in his community. The 82-year-old volunteers at the Nanaimo Military Museum, where he's in charge of two very important things. I'm in charge of security. I'm in charge of the firearms. Lots and lots of firearms, which makes you wonder who would ever mess with him. But Saturday afternoon, a group of people did. This is where he hit me uh, on the side of the jaw here. Murphy was punched and spat on while asking about a dozen people he says were drinking and doing drugs to move along from the stairwell outside the museum. I went down and I told them that people wanted to use these stairs and I got nothing but lip. Murphy took this photo of the group. He says the guy near the top of the stairs flashed a knife. And somebody came up from the group down below and sucker punched me. Shortly after I was punched and I was recovering, somebody came and spit a mouthful of whatever they're drinking on me. A security guard from the nearby mall witnessed the attack and called police. Murphy says the gray concrete wall turns the stairway into a hangout, and he hopes the city will remove the wall. This woman says Nanaimo's social issues need more attention. It's just sad, to be honest with you. Nanaimo RCMP are still investigating the attack on Murphy. But thanks to the seniors' photo evidence, they know who they're looking for. This guy here with the knife. Yeah. And it was this guy here with the gray hoodie that punched me. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. Up next, the whistleblower casting doubt on a major Canadian breast cancer study. Even in the short time I was there, this didn't just happen once. This happened on a daily basis. What she witnessed and why a team of experts say it's proof Canada's mammography recommendations need to change. But first, paid sick leave for a lot of people who don't have it already. Crews are on scene to a head-on collision here in Vancouver, affecting traffic both ways on Hastings at Lillooet. Connect Hearing is Canada's number one physician-referred hearing health care provider. Your hearing is important. Take care of it. Visit connecthearing.ca to book your hearing evaluation today. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above a crash in Vancouver. Here's a look at the latest COVID-19 numbers for BC. We have 322 new cases with just over 3,000 active cases right now. 318 people are in hospital. 109 of them are in the ICU. There have been nine more deaths from complications of the virus and 87.4% of eligible British Columbians are now fully vaccinated. Of course, staying home when you're sick is a big part of stopping the spread, and the B.C. government has finally unveiled its new paid sick leave program. Workers across the province will have access to five days of sick pay. But as Richard Zussman reports, many advocates say that falls short of what they were asking for. The pandemic led to sick days for all coming to B.C. on a temporary basis. Now they will soon be permanent. We have learned many difficult lessons during this pandemic. One being how important it is for workers to stay home when they are sick and not lose wages. Starting January 1st, all workers under the province's Employment Standards Act, from full-time to part-time to casual, will be entitled to at least five sick days per year. 87% of the uh, the workers 
advised us that uh, when they felt too uh, sick to go to work, they utilize five days or less. The cost of the sick days will be covered off by the employer. According to Provincial Health, a cost far less than that of a sick workplace. We know when someone is forced to go to work when they are ill, the workplace is at risk, and we have seen that too, where whole workplaces need to be shut down. Five days is half the 10 days a year the federal government is expected to bring in for federally regulated employees. And for some economists and major labour organizations, BC's plan falls well short. My concern is that in January, if you are off for four days with a really nasty flu or perhaps COVID symptoms, etc., and then in November, you have the same symptoms again, if you have one day left or no days left, we may be back to the same problem that we're trying to solve. The standard model for uh, sick days around the world is short-term sick leave, that these periods of, uh, you know, two weeks to a month. On the flip side, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business says five days on top of an already brutal two years could sink small businesses. This is crazy. Uh, the timing just sucks. This is going to be so hard to deal with. And I think for many businesses, they may just give up. According to the province, 98% of businesses report workers don't abuse current sick pay programs, but small businesses are worried by including all workers. The new system is set up for people to take advantage. Richard Zosman, Global News, Victoria. Well, big chains and department stores are not immune to the financial pressures of the pandemic. That includes a worldwide coffee giant and an iconic Canadian retailer that recently celebrated 100 years in business. Kristen Robinson has part three in our series on the casualties of COVID. Three, two, one! After serving Western Canada for more than a century, the iconic discount chain known for its annual shoe sales took a walk at the start of COVID and never returned. Yay, made it! <laughs> With one last sale in New Westminster, Army and Navy permanently closed its five locations, including the flagship store in Gastown. It was really behind the times in terms of modern technology and integrated online systems. I kind of feel the owner here saw the writing on the wall even prior to COVID. Jackie Cohen says the pandemic only exacerbated the sales hit from Amazon and online shopping. It just became insurmountable that the company could continue. Disney closed its 16 Canadian stores this year, including three in BC, after announcing plans to focus on online sales. The Bay and Nordstrom pivoted to curbside pickup and temporarily reduced their hours as storefront retail vacancy rates in Vancouver jumped 2.8%, from 9.3% in spring 2020 to 12.1% a year later, representing a nearly 30% spike in the number of vacant commercial units. Sadly, there, there has been, you know, I've seen quite a few tenants turn over um, due to the pandemic. Unfortunately, we're pushed over the edge. Survival, a tall order even for Starbucks which accelerated its five-year restructuring plan into 18 months. The Seattle-based company closed up to 300 Canadian locations by the end of March. Just how grande was its exit in B.C., Starbucks wouldn't say. In Vancouver alone, we mapped more than 100 stores in recent years. 65 remain. At least 52 locations are off the grid, 
the majority disappearing since March 2020. Canada's taking a much greater hit and it's concentrated a lot more in the downtown core. Starbucks is adding drive throughs and expanding grab-and-go and delivery. Well, they see growth there, but I worry a little bit about the brand, the cachet, the premium brand that they've built. David Ian Gray says a perfect storm is brewing for retailers in the new year when deferred rents will come due amid staffing and supply chain issues. Maybe the biggest risk that they're going to face through the whole pandemic is still to come. Kristen Robinson, Global News. And tomorrow, in our final installment of the casualties of COVID, how theaters and nonprofits have managed to survive the pandemic's devastating toll. Right now, though, a group of researchers is casting some serious new doubt on the accuracy of a decades old study used to set breast cancer screening recommendations in Canada and all over the world. With the help of a whistleblower who stepped forward, they say they have proof the study is flawed. And it may have cost hundreds of women their lives. Grace Key reports. For years, doctors and women in their 40s have been told regular mammograms weren't necessary because they don't reduce death rates from breast cancer and the harm of overdiagnosis outweighs the benefits. That was based on the Canadian National Breast Screening Study conducted back in the 1980s. But some say the study was flawed. There were more women who died in the mammogram group than in the control group. And it made it look like mammograms don't save lives, when of course we know now that they do. A technologist who worked on the study says some women with detected lumps after a physical exam were intentionally assigned to the mammography group. This didn't just happen once. This happened on a daily basis. Sometimes it would happen a couple of times. They might have gotten two patients that I didn't expect to have. But it happened at least once every day that I was there. In 1985, mammography wasn't really readily accessible to everybody, so it was the most expedient fashion to be able to help these women. While the study has been called into question for years, it's also been recognized as a leader in breast cancer screening research. The head researcher defends its integrity. It's uh, some people whose uh, jobs depend on a mammography deciding once again to attack the Canadian National Breast Screening Study because we didn't find benefits from mammography. The study influenced policy in Canada and beyond, though BC does allow women in their 40s to get a regular mammogram without a doctor referral. Though on HealthLink BC, you'll find regular mammograms are not recommended for women in their 40s, citing the Canadian Task Force on Preventative Health Care. They need to understand all the things that were wrong with that trial and why that trial has to be retracted from the journals and they have to stop using it when they're making decisions about screening policy. A commentary on the study will be published in the Journal of Medical Screening and authors say the study's influence on policy may have contributed to the avoidable deaths of more than 400 Canadian women each year. Grace Key, Global News. Parents push back on autism funding. We're here to say stop, listen and consult. Why this crowd believes the province's attempt to fix the system actually makes it a lot worse. And how wicked wind is causing all kinds of problems in Prince Rupert. Watch the Global News and 980 CKNW Leadership Series every Saturday and Sunday in partnership with Fortis BC. That's energy at work. Traffic is nice and steady now over here at the Alex Fraser Bridge both ways after clearing an earlier major crash on the east-west connector. Still seeing a bit of leftover volume through there in Richmond. 
Through a new charitable partnership between Kermac Cares for Kids and Surrey Memorial Hospital, when you choose Kermac Collision and Autoglass, you also support the Surrey Memorial Children's Health Center. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. A new report is highlighting what appears to be a disturbing pattern of discrimination in policing in our province. BC's Human Rights Commissioner says black and indigenous people are grossly overrepresented in arrest statistics. And as Ted Chernecki reports, the commissioner believes changes need to be made as soon as possible. The results of this research are difficult to ignore. Difficult because the data used in this report comes from the police themselves. For example, this graph shows average annual arrest rates per 100,000 by the Vancouver Police Department between 2011 and 2020. By far, Indigenous males lead the way to custody. Ten times more likely to be arrested than white males. Worse, Indigenous females are 15 times more likely than white females. And black males are five times more likely than their white counterparts. Most studies um, across, across North America reveal that women, uh, regardless of race, are significantly underrepresented in police statistics and charge recommendations. In British Columbia, however, Indigenous women appear to be an exception. The report called Equity is Safer recommends everything from the way and amount of data police collect to a total reimagining of the role of police. Because, as a former insider would tell you, it might be fine for police leaders to say one thing publicly. It's not fine for them to identify an issue that is within the organization that they're in complete denial of. People may wonder what over-policing actually looks like. It looks like Max Johnson, an health-sick grandfather who was handcuffed in front of his granddaughter when police mistakenly thought he had presented a piece of fraudulent ID. The report does note socioeconomic reasons can explain some of the high arrest rates among certain groups. And sometimes it's racist Joe and Jane Public who point police in the wrong direction. It looks like former Justice Selwyn Romilly, a man in his 80s and the first black person appointed to BC's Supreme Court, who was handcuffed and detained along the Vancouver seawall when he was mistaken for a man in his 40s. And it's not just BC, as seen in this tragedy that happened in Edmondson, New Brunswick. And it looks like Chantelle Moore, an Indigenous woman from BC who was shot and killed during a wellness check. We know racism is everywhere, which is why this study states it's that much more important for police, who wield all the power, to rise above it. To be part of the solution, and not part of the problem. Ted Chernecki, Global News. The backlash is growing over the B.C. government's plan to dramatically change funding for autism supports. As Kylie Stanton reports, hundreds of parents took their frustration directly to the legislature, saying B.C. is heading for the same disaster Ontario experienced. They say when making a wish, you have to keep it to yourself in order for it to come true. But these parents and children aren't following those rules. Instead, making it very clear what they want. Stop the autism funding clawback. Last month, the government announced it will phase out direct funding to families with autism and other special needs, replacing it with a new centralized service hub model, claiming it will provide easier access to resources. But parents strongly disagree. Well, our children are getting the support that they need right now. My biggest fear is not being able to keep the support team that we've worked for years to get in place. Suffix E-D. There is precedent for it. A one-stop needs-based hub system is operating in Ontario. But parents say 
It's been a disaster for families. BC's, on the other hand, has proven highly effective. In the families that I've spoken with, about 90% of them are satisfied with this model. Yes. The province says the hub model will offer broader support for neurodiverse children and youth and those with learning disabilities like dyslexia. Much needed given the growing number of kids being diagnosed. But there's concern this will only create more wait lists, longer than they already are. And when that happens, Mitzi Dean, I need you to understand you have doomed my family to regression, self-injury, elopement, and any other number of problems. You need to get this right. It's not an unreasonable ask. The opposition once again calling on the Minister of Children and Family Development to reconsider, conduct more in-depth consultation with the parents and advocates. Services will continue to be provided to those children to make sure that the unique needs of all of these children are met and will be met. The existing individualized funding does not end until 2025. By then, the hub system will be rolled out, which the government says will allow families with support needs access to services. That is, unless these wishes come true. I hope callback doesn't happen. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Victoria. Still ahead, a shop owner who really deserves a trophy. Hockey, baseball, any sport you can think of. After more than 50 years in business, the one game Inga Dembski just can't win. And shoveling snow is a big job in Grand Forks, and sometimes you have to bring in a pack-up. That's later. Here's your Wines of British Columbia question of the day. What is the maximum temperature allowed to harvest and label a wine as ice wine? A. Minus 8 degrees Celsius. B. Minus 15 degrees Celsius. C. Minus 2 degrees Celsius. Stay tuned after the break for the answer. The answer for the Wines of British Columbia question of the day is A. Regulations require minus 8 degrees Celsius. However, producers often wait for minus 10 degrees Celsius or lower before harvesting. A storm hitting B.C.'s north and central coast is causing some problems. The hospital in Prince Rupert has had to close access to some of its parking lots because debris is being blown off the damaged roof. A container ship ran aground off the port of Prince Rupert after high winds caused it to break its lines from where it was berthed near a container terminal. Tugboats refloated the ship and it is back under its own power now. The Port Authority says there appears to be no significant damage to the ship and no pollutants in the water as a result. BC Hydro says it is currently trying to restore power to just over a thousand customers. After something fell onto a power line, Environment Canada is warning the north and central coast of winds gusting to 110 kilometers an hour, which could potentially cause even more damage. A lot more in the weather to keep an eye on. Christy Gordon joins us now with the details. Christy. Thanks, Chris. So looking at the north coast, for example, they're no stranger to strong winds, that's for sure. But today they saw some gusts off the coast up to 124 kilometers an hour. So that's like... A-
one hurricane. But not only that, they've seen about 12 hours worth of gusts in excess of 90 kilometers an hour. So it's been a prolonged uh, day of uh, strong winds across that region. It is now starting to ease as the stronger winds are starting to shift further south. And we are expecting those strong winds to shift into the south coast. Not as strong, but we will see some strong winds. And I'll show you that first, though. Let's talk about rainfall for the south coast. So it is starting to pick up. We are going to see the heaviest rain develop overnight tonight with it most likely expected to be heaviest throughout the day tomorrow. West coast of Vancouver Island will be hardest hit with up to 150 millimeters of rain. Uh, Metro Vancouver, we're talking about 40 to 85 millimeters possible. But keep in mind, it's the soaring freezing levels we're concerned about. So tomorrow we're getting close to that 2000 uh, mark for freezing levels. It may drop a little bit on Friday as we see a bit of a break, but then soar once again. And that melt of snow adds to the moisture that falls from the sky. We're also concerned about the winds, mostly for the uh, Sunshine Coast and East Coast of Vancouver Island and West Coast with gusts up to 90 kilometers an hour. There's the target of that system shifting across our region fairly quickly, which is good news in less than tw- or in more than 24 hours. But we've got another one on deck and that's the biggest concern. Although this first system is not going to be exceptionally strong, it's the fact that we've got more moisture headed our way and behind with very little break. There's your forecast for tomorrow with some breaks of blue sky across the, across the north. Southern region snow changing over to rain and south coast heavy rain with gusty winds near the water. We'll see a high of 8 degrees, a bit of a break on Friday and then heavy rain once again on Saturday. Tonight's central windows weather window coming to you from Prince Rupert. Alexander sending us this one of course with the barge that had broken, broken free from its lines. Mm. All right, thanks Christy. Well, it was a full farm effort after flurries arrived in Grand Forks last week. That is Lobo the donkey pitching in with the shoveling effort after six inches of snow accumulated on Thursday. The next day was also spent cleaning up the barnyard. It's unclear exactly how many hours Lobo put in, but his owner Lorraine says he's always game to help out around the yard. Everyone works on a farm. That's true. <laughs> All right. Squire, what do you have for us? All right. Uh, well, we'll stay with the animal theme. Uh, tonight, the Canucks got marched on by the Penguins. Here's a shot by Rodriguez and scores. Yep, another loss, and the Canucks have drifted further away from playoff island. Also coming up, if there was a trophy for best trophy shop, this woman would win it why she's finally being forced to close. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. ROI is big in business. Return on investment. And uh, a lot of people asking whether the Canucks are getting theirs. I bet you if you ask the Aquilinis, they would say no. (laughs) When you have a team that is one of the highest paid in the league, a team that's expected by ownership and management at least to challenge for a playoff spot and score goals, and they aren't. You can change lines. You can change a power play. You can change how much time a player plays during a game. But when all of that doesn't work, there really is only one change left to make, and that is the head coach. And with every loss the Canucks pile up, the possibility of Travis Green being turfed increase. Tonight in Pittsburgh, J.T. Miller and the Canucks facing Sidney Crosby. 
and the Penguins. Crosby has a great chance here on the power play. Thatcher Demko, who played very well, makes a save. Power play for the Penguins, and this is a giveaway to J.T. Miller. Pittsburgh actually has the worst power play in the league, but of course the Canucks have the worst penalty kill. They couldn't capitalize on this great chance. Tristan Jari, Surrey boy Tristan Jari, who's been hot of late with a nice save there. Another chance on Demko, who had to make 16 saves in the first period. He stops Brian Dumoulin. Power play early in the second for Pittsburgh. Yes, Pittsburgh has the worst power play, but as we said, the Canucks have the worst penalty kill, and this time the worst power play wins. Brian Rust, who never sleeps. Old Neil Young reference there. one nothing in the second period. A giveaway by Quinn Hughes was preceded by a giveaway by Elias Pettersson, and it ends up in the back of the Canucks net. Evan Rodriguez, here's the bad pass. I guess Hughes thought Myers would be there. He wasn't. And watch Hughes, but watch the reaction of Pettersson afterwards. Ugh, not again. 2 nothing. Brock Besser's alone. He is stopped by Tristan Jerry. Nice pass by Miller. Good chance here, but Tristan Jerry, as I said, has been playing very well of late. Okay, still in the second period. Canucks caught up ice. It's basically a three-on-one, but it's Brock McGinn and Zach Acton. Reese playing catch, and it's Ashton Reese who puts it in the back of the net. Not Acton Reese, Ashton Reese. So it's 3 nothing. Third period, finally Bo Horvat scores. He had gone seven straight with nothing. Not a goal, not an assist, but he powers his way to the net, and Tristan Jari has finally broken 3-1. to one. But there was be no comeback here. Empty net, and the Canucks allow one more. McGinn is in. 4-1 the final. Columbus on Friday. The Canucks are sad. And so is Canuck Nation. Well, I'm going to guess actually more angry than sad. Okay. Uh, not a lot of people believe the Seattle Seahawks will be able to overcome this 3-7 and seven record and make the playoffs. They play in Washington Monday night. Some feel after this year, the Seahawks should start a total rebuild. Trade Russell Wilson, ask Pete Carroll to walk away from coaching and await his phone call from the Hall of Fame. But another future Hall of Famer in Seattle still believes a miracle finish is possible. We are talking about linebacker Bobby Wagner. Because I feel like when you watch these games and you watch... Um, some of the games that we let slip away, a lot of it has come down to us getting in our way, whether it's been dumb penalties, whether it's been, you know, mistakes that we've made. And so, you know, I feel like there's time to, you know, right those wrongs. You know, when you're in a situation like this, like the people are going to look at your leaders. And so if your leaders don't believe, then what's the point in the team believing? Lionel Messi, Neymar Jr., Kylian Mbappe. Paris Saint-Germain against Man City. Mbappe would get the first goal of this game. This is Champions League action, if you're wondering. But really, PSG wasn't very good in this game. And eventually, eventually, they'd be overrun by Manchester City. It's 1-1. Gabriel Jesus will make it 2-1. Nice play. Nice play. I should mention, the NFL has settled a lawsuit with the city of St. Louis for moving the Rams to Los Angeles. $790 million is going St. Louis's way, but the city will not get an expansion franchise. Wow. All right. Thanks, Squire. Up next, even with a store full of trophies and awards, why a longtime business owner is closing up shop.
bittersweet end of an era for a longtime shop owner in Calgary. As Global's Gil Tucker shows us, it comes after more than half a century of helping thousands of people celebrate some big wins. This is all for golf. If there was a trophy for most trophies in one place, this is your board, this is for hunting. Inga Dembski just might win it. Hockey, baseball, any sport you can think of. And she knows all the tricks of the trade. All those cups, is a hole in it. You put some silicone in it, then you can drink out of it. But otherwise, it, it'll run through. Running her trophy shop in downtown Calgary for the past 55 years. This is your old way. You set your size like this. See? And then you engrave it. Always running her business on some simple principles. I like people to be happy what I'm doing. And people, I do believe, appreciate that. Inga could have packed it in years ago. I'm 87. But she'd miss this. I just like the interaction with customers. Now, though, it's coming to an end. My biggest downfall was COVID-19. With sports shut down, orders dried up. And then came word from her landlord, redevelopment is on the way and the building's coming down. For me to move, I can't do it anymore. I'm too old for that. And I'm sorry to go, but it's just time. Leaving with all those memories. I did the rodeo for the stampede. And just how many trophies does she have here? Uh, I couldn't even tell you. But Inga does know what she'll be doing with a lot of them when she closes her doors in about two months. Items like this, I would like to give... To give to the thrift shops or foundation, the liver foundation and diabetic, they're most welcome to all that stuff. And they can sell it. And they'll make some money on it. That's just my thank you to Kelly. Gil Tucker, Global News. Camera? It's the old TV camera. <laughs> nice. They've changed a lot since then. Yeah, it sure has. They look more like this now. Mm. All right, uh, Christy, final word on the weather. <laughs> So the rain's starting to pick up, but really the heaviest will likely be through the early morning hours into the day tomorrow with, again, 50 to 80 millimeters expected for the Fraser Valley. For the first system, that is. All right. Thanks very much. Stay dry out there, folks. Thanks to the military crews helping sandbag out there. Have a great night. Good night, all.